hoping my voice is okay enough to record. I did catch COVID last week, that's why I wasn't here. And yeah, it's surprising uh, to me how long it's taking me to get better. No surprise to anyone else who's already had this thing once, but I just decided that I was, um, just wasn't going to affect me that much. And it did. And I still feel pretty, uh, yeah, a little bit, little bit touch and go. Still a little bit tired and hazy. And I'm just going to keep it really simple this week. I have so many things that I want to share with you. So many bits of news and responses to emails and articles I want to point you towards. And I am excited to talk to you despite the fact that I am still mostly horizontal. <laughs> oh, it's so boring. I watched, um, I watched so many movies and my pick of the lot would have to be the 2022 film Causeway. It's a Jennifer Lawrence film, but her co-star basically steals the show. It's a two-hander. It's very simple, very straightforward. Basically, just two people getting to know each other. Jennifer Lawrence plays a returned Afghanistan vet who had something pretty terrible happen to her, but that's not really the point. The point is she's back in her hometown and she's trying to make a new friend and she's doing it very awkwardly. And it's just very quiet and, and beautiful to watch. So that was, that was my pick of the COVID films. I did just manage to get up to Canberra for 24 hours for my dad's birthday. And on the way home, I did something I'm not super proud of. Probably do this more often than I want to admit. I read somebody's text messages over their shoulder on the plane. I know I'm a really terrible person. Uh, just in case you didn't realize that already. So the the exchange I just wanted to share because it is relevant. The first message was, Canberra is totally full of Sydneyites who leave on the weekend. And the reply was, agreed, but you can hardly blame them because it's such a soulless place. And I thought, wow, if only you knew. If only you knew. I've now heard back from both Miranda and Aaron, who were my two interviewees for the Canberra episode that I did, the episode on Canberra's underground poetry scene, which was called The Collapsing Building. And I'm just so relieved that they both had positive things to say about it. So many people said such lovely things about it, but as I said to them, it would be pretty hollow if those two did not feel the same way about the result. So, yeah, I'm really grateful to them for, for sharing their story with me and to all of you who wrote in about it. And I'm grateful as well because this time when I went back home and I was doing all the normal things that I do there, like going to the mall with my dad or trying to buy something from the shop and realizing that at 3 p.m. everything is already closed, I just thought, this isn't the whole story. And I know that now. And it does seem like a soulless place from many angles, but there are other angles to that city. And I understand that now. It's 
amazing to think that doing an episode of this show could actually change the way that I see the place where I lived for 28 years, but that is exactly what has happened. I had a I had a better time in Canberra this weekend than I've ever had, and it's because of that conversation. So that's what that is. Speaking of guests who had positive things to say, I was also very pleased and relieved to hear from everyone who wrote in about the episode I did on the Mountain Goats with Matthew Buckley-Smith. That episode was called This Is Scripture. That one felt like a risk in sort of a different way. And it's wonderful to have listeners who are so supportive so that when I do something like that, uh, when I take a big swing, I feel like you you go there with me and you support me in doing that. And I feel really more confident than ever to try to do different things with this show. Matthew was humble as ever in talking about his contribution. But as I said to him, you really, no amount of fancy production is going to make up for... Um, for bad source material. So the reason that episode worked so well, I think, is because I had such a... He was so open and generous with his um, his side of the conversation. So I really want to thank him again for being part of that and for making that episode with me. I feel really lucky to have a collaborator like him. It's not that easy to find someone who will just try things out with you. So, yeah, thanks, Matthew friend of the show, Liam Fernie, who is probably as big a fan of the Mountain Goats as I am, if not more, wrote in um, with a couple of notes. And part of that was that he shared an article that he wrote for Mianjin, which was called, I wrote this one and I know it ain't great. The disruptive poetry of songwriting. And that was published in 2019. It's not about the Mountain Goats. It's mostly about an artist called Sunkill Moon. But at the start, to set it up, Liam writes, I can't overstate the influence lyrics have had on my own work. When I first started writing poetry, they were the only models I had. Poetry was punishingly difficult to find in sleepy suburban mid-90s Brisbane. Instead, I gravitated towards Leonard Cohen, Nick Cave, Penny Flanagan and Q-Tip. To this day, songwriters are a central source of inspiration helping to shape how I want to say things. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I similarly, I didn't start looking for poetry until the mid-2000s in sleepy suburban Canberra. But um, yeah, there wasn't a great deal to go around there either. But I had at that time been listening to my Smiths and Tori Amos tapes on the bus on repeat for five plus years and I wonder if there's something in that repetitive way of engaging with words that kind of primed me for coming to poetry. Poets don't talk much about their relationship to lyrics but I suspect it's there for many more of us than we realise my listener Wayne got in touch to point me towards the article that Lucinda Williams published in the, in the New Yorker this week about her relationship with the poet Frank Stanford. I sort of looked at the title and I thought that it was going to be about just the fact that she'd read Frank Stanford's work, but turns out she had a full-on relationship with him 
and she's written songs about him. And so, yeah, I interviewed the poet Alan Wern about Frank Stanford a number of years ago now. And yeah, his while his work is probably not for everyone, there is something deeply um, attractive about it. It's very creepy and bluesy and and strange and sad and I can completely see how it would inspire a songwriter and I do wonder how many more stories there are like this from both directions songwriters being inspired by poets and poets being inspired by songwriters being back in Canberra reminded me of going to Paper Chain back in 2008 Paper Chain in Monica and buying one of my very first poetry books ever Sarah Holland Batts collection Aria. I think I might have said this in my introduction to my interview with Sarah but I bought that collection and I realized we were exactly the same age and I pretty much freaked out and stopped reading her work just through sheer creative envy. This week when I was getting petrol I noticed the front page of I think it was The Age or one of the newspapers here and there was a story about Sarah and I realized that she has actually won this year's Stella Prize. I was so stoked to see this. So the Jaguar, which is her most recent collection, has taken out that prize, which is for women's writing in Australia. And this is the second year in a row that poetry has taken out the prize. I'm wondering how the fiction writers are feeling, <laughs> given that two years running now, that prize has gone to a poetry collection because I feel like if I were a fiction writer I'd be like oh well great like now that poetry is included because it wasn't for ages poetry was never included as part of the the Stella prize until a couple of years ago and then Evelyn Araluen's Drop Bear won it and now Sarah Holland Batts the Jaguar has won it and yeah I just feel like if I were a fiction writer I'd be like get out with your poetry get away from my prize <laughs> but look I mean Sarah's collection is magnificent and I felt very vindicated to see that she'd won it because I thought it was great I was looking through the website with the the write-up and everything and I saw that at the end of the page about the book they had links to my interview with Sarah so I basically feel like I won the Stella Prize as well. <laughs> now I'm finally, finally on par with Sarah Holland Bat, so I can be completely happy for her with zero creative envy. There we go. It's okay that we're the same age now. No problem. Speaking of fame and fortune, I have to say a huge thank you as well to the wonderful Tim Relf, who was kind enough to name check Poetry Says in the spring edition of the UK Poetry Society's quarterly newspaper. Tim, you have no idea how excited I got to see the name of my show in print, first of all, but also alongside the podcast, The Long and the Short, which is Mark Ford and Seamus Perry's latest effort. I love those guys. And just to see the name of my show on the same page as theirs, I was just like, ah, oh, this is it. I've finally made it. I'm really, really grateful for that little boost. It amazes me that I have UK listeners because I do such a terrible job of keeping up with contemporary British poetry. But 
hey, if I can share a little bit of what's happening here with people over there, then that's fantastic. And if you found this show because, uh, because you're reading the UK Poetry Society's newspaper, then welcome. My name's Alice. I live in Melbourne. And every episode of this show is a little bit different at the moment. So if you don't like this one, then just skip to the one before. Speaking of being exceptionally famous, the other week I went to Justin Clemens' book launch for his book um, that he wrote with Thomas Ford. It's called Barren Field in New South Wales, The Poetics of Terra Nullius. And look, I hesitate to mention this. Justin does not need this shout out because I swear to God, I've never been to a book launch with that many people. It was at the Wheeler Centre. There must have been 300 people there. And I did buy the book and I did attempt to go up and get it signed, but the line was too long. I had to leave. Like <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't hang out long enough to to get to the front of the line and get my book signed. So I I just did my usual skulking around the back with a couple of other poets and then I I um ran off into the night. But Justin did email me uh the other week with a link to an interview that he's just done on Radio Nationals show the philosopher's zone and that is great and i wanted to mention it because um a number of you really enjoyed hearing him and the other baron field guys when they came on this show uh turns out you know justin can be professional when he's being interviewed by the abc although he does still take a couple of swipes at academia and the place of philosophy in academia that's very fun and there's also a link to a recent article of his, which was published in Arena, called Philosophy Will Ruin Your Life, which is a highly entertaining read. At the end, there's a note where Justin says, A very long time ago, before smartphones, social media, and the triumph of tech bro surveillance culture, I found myself getting annoyed by the many popular introductions to philosophy that came across my desk. So I began writing a book titled How Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. Intended as a diverting corrective. Was I onto something? The publishers said no and dumped the contract. This essay is extracted from what was to be the preface to that book, retrieved from the trash. Well, look, Justin, jokes on them. I mean, you just launched a book to the tune of 300 odd people, so I bet those guys are regretting that move now. Just a couple more notes. I got another lovely long email from Anna, which covered a huge range of topics, including my recent episode on obsession. I wasn't sure about how that one was going to land. I think it probably hit different people in different ways. I think for some, it sounded like what I was saying was, you know, that old story about all artists are crazy and that's part of being an artist is being a little bit nuts. But... I think Anna kind of heard what I was meaning to say in between the words that I actually said. This is what she wrote. She said, I really enjoyed your latest episode on obsession and art. I've just been spending the morning practicing my flute parts for our next concert. Anna is a classical musician, I should have mentioned, and have spent more than an hour on a single page of a piccolo solo. That's not unusual, though. I feel it's just a necessary part of doing my job. The others in the house might not agree, but I've often thought that the desire to focus on minutiae and connect it back to the whole 
then test it again and again is a necessary trait for most musicians to have, maybe most artists of any kind. Same when I'm working on poetry. I really don't want to have to put it down until I feel I've actually accomplished something. And even then, I want to keep going with it. Being in that state of working on something that is productive, sorry to use that word, is the enjoyable part. Like you say, it feels like the hum of the fridge has finally turned off and I can suddenly think more clearly, hear things better. And there's such energy, such momentum to it. So yeah, that momentum is kind of what I was most trying to point to in that episode. The fact that when you are working on something, it could be a piece of music, could be a poem, could be any piece of writing, any creative project at all really, it starts to have its own momentum and you get sucked into it and it's it's hard to think about anything else. And I feel like I've been having the opposite experience over the last month, not just with getting sick, but before that as well, I've just felt like I've had so much dead time and so much time to just get completely stuck in my own head. Um, And I haven't felt that really delicious feeling of being, having all that noise and worry fade away. I've just been stuck in the noise. And yeah, I don't, I don't know why I don't turn to writing poems more often. Like, I'm not sure what that that point of resistance is and I need to get past, like to get into the draft, to get into whatever it is I'm working on or to start something new. But I have to figure that out because at the moment I just feel like perpetually stuck in, um, in not working, in not writing. And it's, it's very boring and very frustrating and I'm very sick of my own head. So, yeah, I did start something new when I was on the plane. So, um, yeah, in between reading other people's sex messages over their shoulder. Uh, so, yeah, here's hoping that that goes somewhere and, and starts to become, starts to get its own momentum to it. I did also hear, not just from one female listener, but from another, I heard from Regularly Ricketts correspondent Zara. And Sarah has been looking into Harry Reid's poems, which is very exciting because Harry's work is is far, far away from the type of work that I know Sarah is um, usually into. She is a she's much more likely to be reading something with meter and rhyme in it. But she's been spending time with Harry's poem One Foot in the Harbour, which Sarah says moves like a dance, and it sounds like it really convinced her. I want to pull out this part of the poem that reads, Gate spills out into bottle shop. Maybe you'll be the one to make Brisbane cool again. You do it from Footscray. Do it from anywhere. No longer required to stay home. And your bad housemates are more anthropological. Now the lease is up in a month. First of all, I wanted to mention that because Zara wanted to know what's a bottle shop? (laughs) Which, of course... It's one of those words that you don't realize until somebody from overseas is is reading a line like that that a bottle shop is that's an Australian that's an Australian idiom. A bottle shop being a liquor store or uh, we would also call it a grog shop. I also wanted to bring this poem up because it epitomizes 
this laconic Australian-ness that I was trying to describe in a previous episode, which I called Funny Ha Ha. Again, a listener helped me to kind of unpack what I was actually trying to say. Adam Ford wrote to me with a link to an article that was published in The Age in the early 80s. Uh, It's a double review written by Thomas Shapcott. Very short, very fun to read. It's a review of Stalin's Holidays, which is John Forbes' first collection, and the anthology The New Australian Poetry by John Tranter. So I was trying to talk about that anthology a little bit in that episode, Funny Ha Ha. And I love the way this article characterizes it. I also love it for the fact that it ends with the byline, Thomas Shapcott is a well-known poet and critic. I just think that's great. Like, that's all, that's all we need to know about him. He's a well-known poet and critic. If you've got any questions, um, get in touch with the editor. But yeah, the way that Shapcott characterizes this anthology is just perfect. He says, the anthology has proved its essential purpose by drawing attention to a grouping of poets largely connected with using language in a more open-ended way than has traditionally been the case in Australia. Although not all the poems included follow the same guidelines, they do pretty much share the feeling of the poem is not virtually contained in its opening, as is the case with so many well-made poems in the English tradition. Clearest ancestors here are the 1950s and 60s Americans, from the Black Mountain School of Olson, Duncan and Creeley, to the deep image writers like Bly, and the Lower East Side New Yorkers Frank O'Hara and Ted Berrigan, with a bit of John Ashbery thrown in. Translated into Australian, these movements and trends have given a much-needed shock and challenge to our verse. The new Australian poetry, if it does nothing else, provides a fairly cohesive rundown on the new followers. It is, in essence, a tranter grouping, a roll call of his friends. It pretends to some historical survey, but you don't have to believe that. The introduction is pompous and fuzzy, too, but none of these things fully impairs the book's sense of vigorous discovery and the delight in exploring new ways. And then, talking about Forbes' poetry, Shapcott also says, at its best, it is zestful, witty, chatty, and curiously disturbing. It puts everything on the surface to discover how much we, our society, is merely surface. So that that sums it up perfectly. I didn't even need to try to, to figure it out myself. Shapcott figured it out um, nearly 40 years ago. I wanted to bring that review up as well because I did find out earlier this week that John Tranter has just passed away. It's always really sad to hear news like that. I never got the chance to meet John. I left it too late. I do want to end with a couple of poems of his. That review of Shapcott's mentions Robert Duncan, Black Mountain School poet, and there's a delightful poem that Tranter wrote, which was brought to my attention by Brendan Casey. Um, When Robert Duncan came over to Australia, he made a really big impression on a lot of poets and I think that this might have riled John Tranter a little bit. He was a bit like rolling his eyes at all his contemporaries and how seduced they were by this guy, Robert Duncan. So he wrote this short, hilarious poem called Famous Poet Jets Home to USA. In America, no writers have false teeth. They are too beautiful. 
Imagine meeting Robert Duncan in your laundromat. In America, it happens all the time. You say, hi, Robert, and your teeth fall out. And you can't write a poem about that. That's it. <laughs> That's all there is. That's perfect. Okay. God knows if this is usable. This is the second take I've done of this. The first one was... Yeah, I think I couldn't pull it together. So I'm, hopeful, hope, I'm hoping that this one's okay and um, I'm hoping my voice was bearable to listen to today and I'll be back with something a little more vital next week. So I'm going to end with this, another poem of John Tranter's called Young Folly and this was included in the 2016 Best Australian Poems edited by Sarah Hollenbatt. Young Folly. It must seem like a mountain of folly to the old people. But we take our chances and we're always on the ready. We're on the ready right now. And yet they think we're just a troubled handful of trouble. Just can't go straight. Can't go straight like the arrow of time that speeds from ancient times to right now to get you between the eyes. This is the realm behind the eyes, with its whip-quick answers to how to behave, its cheap vow to be better, much better, quickly broken, so that what is not better is boarding at boarding time, those giant flying machines. We take a drag and fuck the lung. Fuck the drag of the air, the horizon's curve. We're all going on a summer holiday already gone into sad age, waiting with just a wave.